0: 20 minutes, and then we're going to have you guys go to your breakouts here in a little bit. Uh, We have some students that are over at Feed My Sheep this morning. I'm going to go join them as soon as I finish here. So if you have a question or something like that after I finish speaking and you're like, where did Dave go? No, the rapture did not happen. Um, Dave just went to go to Feed My Sheep, and so that's where I'll be in a few minutes. Um, So we are, this is actually a sermon I was going to preach like the day the power went out in here. So um, I had to kind of refresh make sure I looked at my notes again to make sure I knew what I was talking about this morning. Um, But I want to go back to the first week in James, the book of James. When we first did this like three weeks ago, um, I showed you a passage from Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. I've got to correct myself on this because from that passage I told you, I said that James went to the Gentiles and that Paul went to the Jews. I had that reversed. So um, really what... The text says is that James went to the Jews and Paul went to the Gentiles. Now, who caught that mistake? Anyone? Bryce. I saw that hand. Of course he did. Um, anyone else? All right. My wife caught it. She always catches my mistakes. She's good at that. Um, yeah, so a few of you caught that. And so I say that um, just to let you know that that uh, I'm human. I apologize. And I just reversed it. I don't know what I was thinking when I said that. Um, but it's also encouraging to know I can speak like falsehood up here and like no one even knows. That's kind of frightening or comforting, however way you want to look at it, um, but, but glad to know that three of you are paying attention. That's really, really encouraging. Um, so today we're going to be in actually the first part of the book of James, so turn to James chapter 1. And we talked last time about the person of James, this time we're actually getting into the book of James couple of review things. I'm going to ask you some questions. I expect some response back. So who is the book of James written by? James. Easy. That's a one up question. So who, who is James? Just say a couple words. All right, Jesus' half-brother, all right? So James is one of the brothers of Jesus, one of the earthly brothers of Jesus. And last time we spoke... My goal was to paint a picture last time of who James is as a person, because I want you to see these people as real people. So often in the Bible, we read about people and we just think, oh yeah, that's James. He's always been a Christian since he was like six months old. And uh, you forget that these are real people with real stories. And my point in telling you the story of James last time was so that you would understand that he didn't believe Jesus, his own brother, was God until after something, and what was that something? It was the resurrection. So James, the brother, he didn't believe that his, his brother was son of God until um, 33 years into the life of Christ is when James um, came to faith. He came to faith after he saw the risen Christ, which is kinda hard, it's kind of hard to argue against the resurrection. It's kind of hard to argue against that. So he saw his brother, and he believed finally that he was the son of God, who he said he was. So in fact... Um, I think that his conversion, James' conversion, is one of the biggest proves, proofs of the resurrection because we see how long it took him to come to faith in Christ. Um, so today we're getting into the book. So I want to give you some background about the book first. This book is, first of all, written to Jewish Christians. This is written to Christians that were, had a Jewish background. If you remember back in Acts chapter 7, there's the death of Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. He was killed for his faith in Jesus. And this began a pattern of persecution in the Jerusalem area. And this is what caused Christians, Jewish Christians in particular, to scatter throughout the Mediterranean area. They scattered because of persecution, which began with the martyrdom of Stephen. So there are Jewish Christians scattered all throughout the Mediterranean area. And these Christians began to set up house churches. But what happened is, is that um, they begin suffering for their faith. So they're setting up house churches all throughout that area, and they're also suffering for their faith. And they're suffering in a couple of ways. Many of these Christians are poor, and they're being exploited by wealthy people in those surrounding areas. So because they're Christians and also Jewish, they're being exploited because of um, their lack of wealth and someone else's power and wealth. There are lawsuits being filed against many of them. They're suffering because of their faith. The third thing I want you to see from the background of James is that there are Christians also fighting against one another in these house churches. So their persecution is not just from outside, it's also from the inside. There are Christians that are fighting against each other um, in these house churches that are in this area. And if, you, if you're if you like me, I look at that and I think of, I'm strangely encouraged by that. I'm strangely encouraged that we see messiness in the church, even early on, because Um, I think the expectation for a lot of us, you'll hear churches say sometimes, like, if we can just get back to the way church was done in the New Testament, it would all be better today in the modern era. But when you look at the Bible, you read 1 Corinthians, really messed up church. James is writing to churches that are suffering, not just from outside, but also from the inside. The history of the church, it's a messy place. This should be encouraging, I think, to us to, to make sure, remind us that um, it's always been that way. It will always be that way until Christ returns. The fourth thing we see in this book is that there are Christians that are living worldly lives, and so you're going to see a lot of themes in James about holiness, right living. And we look in uh, in John chapter 17. Jesus actually prays for the church, and he says he says to his followers, "I pray that they would be in the world but not of the world." And when Jesus prays that. What he's referring to is that you and I would be living on mission in the world, but not allow the world to rub off on us in our philosophies and our ways of living. And so we see in this book in James that Christians are getting caught up with worldly lives with those around them. So for the book of James, the big theme I want to go with for the series is the gospel on the ground. Last semester, last spring, we looked at Romans chapters 1 through 8, and Paul talks about some really lofty ideas. Romans 1 to 8 will make your head hurt. You agree? It's got lots of big words. It's high and lofty abstract ideas. And then Romans, we covered Romans 1 to 8 last spring semester. And I would refer to that as like the gospel in the air. These are the high and lofty ideas of the Christian faith. Romans 1 to 8. James is what I would call the gospel on the ground. This is applying the gospel to real life. This is what the gospel looks like lived out. And so we're going with this theme for this series. So look with me in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 today. And we see right out of the gate, James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And he says, greetings. So he's writing to these 12 tribes of Israel that are dispersed throughout this part of the world. And one of the first words he says is servant. Do you see that? He calls himself a servant. So here we have the brother of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, Jesus, my brother. Or he doesn't say, Jesus, my friend. Or Jesus, my homeboy. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How profound is it that the earthly brother of Jesus is? He sees his role now as a believer in Christ. He sees himself as a servant to the living God. He sees himself as a, he calls him his Lord. I'm sorry, but I don't think any of you in this room would ever refer to yourself as a servant to one of your siblings, would you? You would not call your sibling Lord unless you really thought that they were, right? Unless they're just a lot bigger than you. But you wouldn't call it, you wouldn't use these words unless you really meant it, unless you really knew your place before this person. So I think this, the first, the third word of this book, I think shows the, the reality of his conversion, that he can call, he can call himself a servant of Jesus. He can call Jesus Lord, and he knows that seeing Christ as Lord is what trumps every other kind of relationship he's had with him. It trumps his earthly status as brother. It trumps his even friendship status with him as a brother. He sees, him, he sees himself as a servant. He sees Jesus as Lord. Look in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I'm going to show you four things out of these first uh, uh, verses two to four. The first thing we see is that trials are always a matter of when, not if. Trials are a matter of when, not if. I know I speak to you in the room right now. Some of you guys know this firsthand. I don't have to tell you that trials are a when or that that they're not just an if. It's a when. And he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. So, the first point I want you to understand from this passage is that Christians will encounter suffering sometimes because of their faith, but sometimes in spite of their faith. So, when James says trials of various kinds, he's referring to this is a catch all term. This means various kinds, this means all kinds. This means trials that might happen because you're a Christian it might mean trials that come just because life happens. So he's he's using a catch-all term here when he says trials of various kinds. But the second point I want you to see here is no matter the trial, suffering is always a test of faith. Every single trial that you and I are going to encounter, whether it's one that happens as a result of you being a Christian or one that just happens because life just happens to you, every trial that you and I encounter in our life is in some form a test of faith. Now, I know if I say that to you, you're thinking, well, if I, I want you to answer this question. Which kind of suffering is harder for you? The kind that seems to happen randomly or the kind that seems to happen because you're a Christian? Which kind of suffering is more difficult for you? Because even if you um, have something happen to you that seems kind of random, it can still feel like God is wreaking havoc in your life. So if someone in your life gets cancer, that's kind of one of those random things that we know it doesn't escape God's viewpoint, his sovereignty, but that's just everyone at some point gets sick. That can seem random. But when those things hit your life, that can feel like, well, God must be punishing me. God has it out for me. But on the other hand, if you are a Christian... And you're being persecuted because of your faith. Like you're suffering because you're a Christian. Friendships are abandoning you, or people are making fun of you, or mocking you, or persecuting you because of your faith. This is the kind of suffering that has another layer to it, because now you feel like, okay, God, I'm actually obeying you. I'm doing the very thing you want me to do, and I'm suffering for it. I'm actually suffering for obedience, and this can bring about a whole other layer of anger towards God. Of God, why? I know other things can seem random, but this is not random. I'm suffering because I'm obeying you. And so, a question for you to wrestle with is which one is more difficult for you as a Christian? Is it one where you're suffering because of your faith, or one when the suffering just feels like it's just random and you just feel like God's just out to get you? It can feel that way sometimes. And I know some of you guys are in this place right now, you're suffering and it feels like the walls of life are closing in around you. I don't have to explain this. You know the feeling I'm talking about. And just when you think it can't get any worse, it does get worse. And it just feels like there's just one thing after another, after another, after another, and it never lets up. And I want to encourage you this morning, if this is you, at first, this passage does not seem very comforting at all, does it? Because the first part of... Verse 2, he says, consider it all joy or count it all joy. And we ask, what in the world does he mean by that? How can I count something joy that's so horrific and unjoyful in my life? And I want to give you some freedom today. This does not mean that you just walk around pretending to be happy. Darren, our speaker last week, he talked about a girl that he knew who just had happy face on all the time, just happy face. And I was actually going to tell a story about someone that I knew like that at my old church, and there was this girl that no matter what you said to her, you'd be walking down the hallway at the church, you'd say, hey, how's it going? And she'd just go, I'm blessed. Like anything in life, she would just say, that was her response, is, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. Everything was just hashtag blessed in her life, Everything. And you could never really get her to open up, never really see a real person. I mean, you just really feel like you can't even talk to someone like that because they just got it all together. And deep down, I know she doesn't, but she presents that she does. And so this does not mean that you walk around and just say, you know, everything is just great. Everything is just happy. Everything is just awesome. Just fairy dust and rainbows, right? Like you don't, that's not life. And so he's not telling us to walk around with some kind of facade of happiness or some kind of facade of joy. Just put on a happy mask in spite of how sad you are on the inside. This is not what, Paul, what James is saying. And I think what he's getting at here is that there's a way in which we can consider even suffering joy. And we find the clue in the passage here. I want you to look down with me again at the verse And here's a statement on the screen for you so you can write this down. We can consider it joy, not because we like the process, but because we have a greater desire for the end result. So the way in which you and I consider suffering joy is because even in the midst of great suffering, you know God is creating in you something called, the verse calls it, steadfastness. This is strength. This is perseverance. This is endurance. And if you ever ask the question, okay, why does God allow suffering, I would turn directly to James chapter 1, because there's actually an answer. It's not the answer we like, one that we're hoping for, but the answer is, we can consider it joy, we can consider it all joy when we suffer, because it produces in us something called steadfastness. Now, quick survey question. How many of you in this room, you love to run? Raise your hand. You just love to run. Okay, so there's a handful, all five of you weirdos in here. So who here remembers a guy named John Jennings? John's crazy. John would run 50 miles just for fun. Like in a day. No joke. Impact camp, he would run like at like 3.30 in the morning or something crazy like that. Just go out and run. He loved to run. And so I have never, ever loved running for the sake of running. I'm not crazy like that. Um, in high school, I played uh, two sports. I played soccer. I played basketball. So to me, running was like a necessary evil. I did it because I had to. Um, for me to run... I need a ball to chase for me to want to run. So there's something different about the people who just love to run for the sake of running. Those are the weirdos. But people like me that are more normal, we only want to run if there's adrenaline and we see a guy with a ball. i got to chase that guy. And so we chase the guy with the ball or we're running with the ball trying to escape from another guy. This is the normal way to want to run, all right? And so it's called adrenaline and you sprint towards the goal with the soccer ball at your feet, and as soon as you either miss or make the shot, then you realize how tired you are, because the adrenaline kind of fades a little bit. So I've never loved to run for the sake of running. Now my wife, who is here, she can raise her hand over here, Um, she actually has loved to run. like She loves running for the sake of running. And so we first got married, and she would say things like, hey, I'm going to go for a run. Do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, running is kind of for wimps. I think I'm going to go to the gym. And so my thing was I go to the gym and, like, pump iron. I'm not going to go run. What's the point of running? But over time, she began to, like, wear me down. She began to, you know, say, well, you know, I was out in the in the breeze and the trees and the park and and having my time with God. Like, she can, like, pray while she runs. I don't get that. I'm like, Ooh, you know, I can't pray and run. I can just pray for God's mercy when I run. That's all I pray for. But she can, like, pray and run and, like, have this amazing time outside in the trees and in the park and all that. And, and so over time, she began to kind of wear me down. And she'd say, you should start running. It's really, it really kind of makes you feel better and stuff. And I was like, no, I'll just keep doing weights. So I began to, like, do this thing. I would, like, after I work out, I go run, like, just one mile, Right. Which is not much for a lot of you, but it's a lot for me back then. Started out kind of small. Then I got a couple of like knee injury, a little toe injury. And I was like, okay, good. I can stop that. Um, then she's like, well, hey, how, how about you get the right shoes? Buy the right shoes. I was like, all right, I'll buy the right shoes. So I got the right shoes. So I overcame the injuries and stuff. And then, then it became like wintertime. And I'm like, sweet. It's cold outside. I can't run. And then I thought, you know, I'll just I'll try out the treadmill, all right? And my wife is like, Dave. Treadmill is not real running. That's not, that's like hamster stuff. Like, that's not real running. This is, this is not the real deal. And I started to like the treadmill. Courtney didn't like that I liked the treadmill. And I like the treadmill because the treadmill is inside where it's nice and either warm in the, in the wintertime or cold in the, summertime, or in the summertime. The treadmill has a fan that blows in my face, keeps me cool. The treadmill is great because the treadmill does half the work. I mean, I put my foot down. The treadmill moves the foot for me, right? It's just like half the work, right? And so my wife would say, that's not real running, and I kind of agree. But I let myself believe that it is the real deal. And so now I've kind of worked up to a place where I run now about a 5K about three times a week. But it's on a treadmill. Okay, it's not real, but it's on a treadmill. And over time I've noticed this difference where I start to have more energy throughout the day. I start to crave better foods. I start to feel more focused, more energy. I can feel it even affect me spiritually, my moods. I've noticed that running actually does some good things for me. And from the outside, somebody might look at me and say, man, Dave just must love to run now. And that's not true. It's not that I just love to run. I still don't love it. I still don't love the process of running. But here's what I've grown to love. I've grown to love the results. And what keeps me wanting to run is is I've grown to love the result, the benefit in my life, more than just the pain and suffering of running. I'll put up with the pain and suffering of running because, not because I love it, but because I love the results of it. And I think this is kind of how we have to view suffering. You don't have to love suffering. No one is saying, the Bible's not saying to you, like, hey, pray for more cancer. The Bible's not saying to you, um, when, 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 when bad things happen to you, be like, hey, great, I want more, bring it on, God, I'll bring on more of it. This is not what's being communicated in Scripture. You don't have to love the process. But you need to love the results. And the results in this passage are steadfastness, endurance, patience, strength. So once you to look down again at verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So watch this. Suffering brings about an addition by subtraction that makes us more complete. What does that mean for us? So suffering always feels like something is being taken away from your life, a subtraction. Suffering always feels like something's being taken out of your life. But this passage tells us is that whether you've lost a friendship, lost a girlfriend, lost a boyfriend, lost a parent to death early, maybe maybe a divorce, lost an opportunity you thought that you had, maybe you've lost just complete hope, But suffering always, the definition of suffering is that it always feels like something got taken from you, subtracted from your life. But look again at what verse 4 tells us, when steadfastness is allowed to have its full effect, we are actually made complete, lacking in nothing. So watch this. So through the subtraction, something deeper is actually added into your life. It's really a gaining by losing. This might be hard to understand, I know, for many of us, but maybe you can relate to this. When I was in um, college, I won't tell the details now, but when I was in college, i say the year after college and from there to seminary the next year was probably the hardest year of my life. I lacked direction. I had no idea what I was going to do for a job. I had no clue. Um, I just had no idea what, what was next for me and what God had for me. The hardest year of my life at that point of my life But there's something else that happened as a result of that losing and it was something that God added to my life and it was a real sense of his presence, a real sense of trust, a real sense of faith. It literally felt like, as I'm in tears much of the time throughout that year, that God was just at work in a way that he could not be if it wasn't for the suffering. And it was hard. It was super hard. But I'll tell you, I don't recall a time in life where I have sensed God's presence, the weightiness of it in my life like I did for that year. And I don't sit there and go, God, bring on more suffering. But I'm thankful that through that subtraction in my life, there was something gained, something added as a result of it. You know, we don't always, um, we look for the why all the time we suffer, right? We always ask God why, 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 why? And it's a good question to ask. But the why in this passage is different than what you're probably looking for. The why here is endurance and patience and steadfastness. Look again at verse 5. Look down at verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I'll be very quick and have you guys go to breakouts here in a minute. Two things I want you to see in this part of the passage. It sounds like he just changed the subject from suffering to wisdom. Right? Why is he doing that? Because here's why. Because you have to have wisdom in trials. The one thing you need during trials is wisdom from Jesus Christ himself. That's the thing you need the most in a time like that. There's a certain false wisdom that the world provides you guys have heard statements like no pain no what no pain no gain right you've heard things like whatever doesn't kill you only makes you stronger you've heard these things before even christians have some of these things christians will say things like you know when god closes a door he always opens a a window that's a dumb saying don't ever say that to someone who's suffering right these are not comforting words. This is worldly wisdom. But what you need the most when you suffer is actually godly wisdom. And this is what God provides for those who ask. He also starts talking about doubting. Now, this sounds really harsh because we're like, okay, we're suffering, God. Why are you now lecturing us about doubt? Like, we're not allowed to doubt while we're going through suffering? Is that what you're saying? And I think what he's talking more about here is not just having questions and doubts, but someone who has their foot in two worlds. One foot in the world, one foot in Scripture. One foot in the world, one foot in the body of Christ. God needs you to be fully in when you suffer. Otherwise, you will fall flat on your face. I want to close with a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I want to encourage you, if you're someone who's going through suffering right now, which many of you are in various ways, that do not see this as an opportunity to turn your back on God. Don't make the mistake thinking he's abandoned you and he's left you because this is the time when he's trying to speak the loudest into your life. Let's go to breakouts. Um, They're labeled down there, down the hallway here for your grade and gender. The discussion sheets for the leaders are on the ping pong table there. You guys can grab those, head to breakouts. Try to dismiss by about twelve fifteen for the leaders. I think every group should have a leader. If there's one that's missing, grab one from another group and adopt them for today. Make sure you get your trash off the tables as well, please. Thank you.